like to think about us as individuals and people and cultures and spaces as really being like these walking intersections of futures and histories. We recently sat down with author Yatasha Womack to ask about the influences of ancient Egyptian cultures in her upcoming graphic novel, Black Cube, a work that draws heavily on Afrofuturism and the Black speculative arts movement, broad categories that employ science fiction, fantasy, and horror to explore themes of the African diaspora. During our conversation, we talked about the concept of time in Black speculative fiction, pathways interwoven where artists come to terms with their present through themes of the past and the future. It's almost more like a, a web. Here's another symbol, the infinity symbol, or DNA strands. That's the way sort of time and space is weaved in some of my storytelling, and to some extent, the way some Afrofuturists approach their work as well. It's a sort of remix of a narrative around who we are and how we got here and what we value. But that remix approach is very strong in Black cultures, generally speaking. Uh, when I think about, uh, you know, quilting, or I think about just remixing in music or sampling in music, where you're taking bits and fragments and kind of always sort of reinventing a story. Welcome to the OI Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Townsend, and uh, I thought it had to be a host. It had to be a host. It must have been scary for people. Welcome to the OI Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Townsend, and in our Contemporary Artists Ancient Voices series, we've been talking to artists who have made works inspired by the ancient world. This week, we're speaking with author, filmmaker, and Afrofuturist scholar, Yatasha Womack. Hello, Yatasha. How are you? Some of our listeners might remember the Afrofuturism Symposium that you organized at the OI in 2018. During that event, you moderated a panel of Egyptologists and archaeologists discussing the realities of Egyptian and Nubian influences in contemporary art. I'm in a world of people who are super excited about Egypt. And they read a lot about Egypt, uh, ancient Egypt, and they use it in their work, but they aren't formal Egyptologists, right? So, and may not always have an opportunity to hear an Egyptologist. Uh, and to the extent that maybe they're able to hear it, don't always hear it in the framing of sort of these creative arts uh, and the other cultures. So. For me, it was an absolute dream to be able to put together the Afrofuturism Symposium uh, because it's so meaningful, I think, for a lot of Black creators and for a lot of Black enthusiasts of, of Egypt to be in spaces where you could talk about that relationship, talk about it openly, and talk about people who've studied it in a variety of ways. So you've been working on this, uh, this book, uh, Black Cube, I think it is. Black Cube is my debut graphic novel, and it follows these two gods uh, in the Agduad. They're gods of the night, they're gods of creativity, and we have a lot of fun bringing them back as people who are really inspiring these different artistic movements. And it really just became this really fun thread to ex explore uh, the ancient world and sort of talk about the the role that it's played in inspiring a lot of Black creatives. For our listeners who may be unfamiliar with the Ogdoad, 
The term refers to any group of eight gods. The ancient Egyptians had a variety of groups consisting of eight gods. The most well-known is the so-called Hermopolitan Agduad, a group of eight divine pairs, male and female, that represent various aspects of the primordial soup that lies outside of and prior to the creation of the visible world. The group is most often associated with Hermopolis, the Greek name of the city as it was associated with Thoth, in Greek Hermes, while the ancient Egyptian name Kamenu actually meant eight city. One's male, one is female, and they come to symbolize the darkness but at the, that particular time darkness or the night so to speak was really a reflection of the beginning before the beginning the darkness after dusk and the darkness right before dawn which is essentially kind of the seed of of creativity it's the moment before birth it's the void before creation uh or that spark in the void before creation and I thought that that was really a fun idea to, to think about, sort of these beginnings before the beginning. Uh, so there's moments in the story where we talk about sort of the moments before the Harlem Renaissance became the Harlem Renaissance or the moments before house music became house music in Chicago. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and these gods played a, a role uh, with some of the characters who who are part of this thread of time, uh, but they, they run a really cool gallery. And so the gallery world becomes this interesting juxtaposition for a lot of our narratives in the Black Cube story. Was this something that you wrote during the pandemic as you were sheltering in place, so to speak? As a matter of fact, ironically, I finished the first draft before the pandemic began, like those two months before the pandemic began. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, I'm almost uh, coming to typify this arc that I was exploring in the story, where it's a moment before a change. I have to say it was kind of a fun experience in the midst of all that happened to be working on that particular story as a thread of creativity and to really think about creativity as a lifeline. You're really known for this Afrofuturism book that you wrote, which is uh, comes highly recommended and uh, is a really fascinating read. Can you tell our audience a little bit about Afrofuturism and what it is? Sure. Afrofuturism is a way of looking at the future or alternate realities, but through like a Black cultural lens. And when I say Black cultures, uh, I'm talking about anyone who, who's embracing that identity, whether they're in, you know, the United States, the Caribbean, South America, Europe, the continent of Africa itself, Australia, et cetera. And the, it's an artistic aesthetic because you can see it in comics or you see it in Black Panther, you see it in a lot of music, uh, but it's also a, a method and a practice, um, this way of looking at the world. Uh, and the way I sort of simplify it for people is to say that it intersects the imagination, liberation, technology, and mysticism, along with Black cultures. But at the end of the day, all cultures have a relationship to space and time. And this, space and, and this relationship to space and time is the through line for a larger philosophy that comes out in the works that we create, the architecture, um, our ways of engaging with the world, and so Afrofuturism really just comes to celebrate this relationship that people of the African diaspora continent have had to space and time. When people think about Afrofuturism, 
some of the, you know, maybe popular references would be a Janelle Monet and Erica Badu in the world of music, Earth, Wind, and Fire. If you're talking about literature, people will reference sometimes uh, Octavia Butler or some works of Samuel Delaney, Tanner Nareev Du, oh, Nayla Hopkinson. And, and there's a lot of theory work. The term itself was created in the 90s by Mark Derry. Derry kind of contextualized it as an American exploration, meaning American as in the United States. But a lot of the scholars after, immediately after him, have really situated it as a way of looking at the, our relationship to time, space, and futures uh, through sort of a, an African diasporic and continental lens. But it's really become more popular, the term itself, as sort of this galvanizing idea, really in the past decade or so. Mm. And the book I wrote, Afrofuturism, played a big role in that. Um, and the popularity, a lot of art retrospectives, the Studio Museum of Harlem did an art retrospective, the tail end of 2013, around the time my book was coming out. And there's some other anthologies where, and it sort of creates sort of this synergy where people were really talking about the ideas in Afrofuturism as Afrofuturism. But that said, you can point to artists who've been exploring um, this relationship between imagination, technology, mysticism, um, and, and so forth, and Black cultures, you know, for a very, very long time. Uh, and that, you know, you can find all kinds of references going into antiquities, going into sort of more ancient philosophies, uh, and then just looking at, say, contemporary stories today. I like to remind people that W.B. Du Bois, who many people know as a, as a, a scholar who talked about the, uh, the color line, you know, being kind of the defining issue of the 20th century. Uh, he was one of the, the pioneers of sociology, certainly and helping to frame conversations around um, Black people. But he also wrote speculative fiction. Uh, he wrote some sci-fi. That I did was, not know that. yes. Uh, well, he did at one essay, one story rather called The Comet, that was featured in an anthology, a sci-fi anthology called Dark Matter um, around the year 2000. And since then, this particular you know, short story, which had been featured in one of his older collections. Um, since that point, when that book was put together, uh, the story was like people saw it and framed it as science fiction. Some people could say, okay, I hear what you're saying about Afrofuturism, but how is this, what is this, just Black people in space? Is that the gist? And I think it's important for people to see that what makes Afrofuturism a little different from other takes on sci-fi or other futurisms is that it recognizes the value of intuition through this concept of the divine feminine, uh, you know, where intuition and the realm of the emotions is as valid as the intellect. Uh, and it also, it's a reminder that time, you know, the, the future past and present can very much function as one. Mm. Uh, and, and that's a big theme in a lot of the writing, the works, the artworks that are described as Afrofuturist. Uh, and, and then in addition to that, you know, it acknowledges that, uh, you know, all technologies <laughs> are not signs of progress, you know, with race and that particular categorization system being a reminder um, of a, a type of technology 
um, which is gets really interesting. And, and so all of these things, I think, uh, are, are something that make, you know, it, it, it's Afrofuturism recognizes that mysticism and technology can be flip sides of the same coin. Um, can you tell us how does, uh, how do you think ancient cultures integrate with Afrofuturism or vice versa? What does Afrofuturism pull from uh, ancient cultures, like ancient Egyptians specifically? Well, what's really fascinating, um, I think because of this time, the, the way Afrofuturism uh, often contextualizes time with this future past and present sort of overlapping, you know, there's the philosophies and the ideas of the ancient world can very much speak to today and to the future. And I think, you know, there's this idea of Sankofa, which uh, is a, an Akan symbol, and a, and a, the Akan are uh, a people out of Ghana, and there's a particular symbol called the, the Sankofa bird. And the Sankofa symbol really talks about bringing the best of the past into the future. And so just that idea is one which has played a big role in, in Pan-Africanism. It's, it's something that's sort of played a role, I think, in a lot of Black cultural philosophies. Uh, but it also lays sort of a groundwork to engage these ideas from uh, ancient Egypt. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I grew up very much as a person who my engagement with um, Black histories, you know, or just learning about cultural history and uh, was, it, it sort of ran in tandem with having a relationship with Egypt, for example. Uh, a lot of the you know, a lot of the funk album covers, uh, a lot of funk music, a lot of jazz had Egyptian themes, Egyptian references. Uh, and Egypt, uh, a lot of the ideas in it were, were really, or the aesthetic, the ideas and the aesthetic were sort of framed musically in a lot of music that I grew up with. Um, certainly a lot of hip hop references. And I think one of my favorite artists of all time, Erica Badu, uh, she wore an Egyptian onk. So I want to say my first real engagement with the aunt was through Erica Badu's, this R&B or neo-soul singer, and she's wearing this image, and she would talk about it in her concerts. Um, and she'd talk about it on her album sometimes. So someone's right. talking about the symbolism of an aunt, right, and it comes across in a song, right, um, that's a different impact and resonance than if you're literally trying to break down, you know, the meaning of the onk. I mean, you're breaking it down, but the song gives it a world to exist. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes when we're talking about things that are ancient, if you the commentary that you're trying to make is that it has, you know, relevance today, you have to almost create a world for that idea to exist, to understand the relevance it has. And that's where the speculative comes in. Why do you think that uh, ancient Egypt is so uh, personal and important to uh, Utah artists, uh, Black artists, and Afrofuturists in uh, particular? I think one, it is, you know, Egypt, just generally speaking, has been fascinating to the Western world. Um, and it's been celebrated. It's been mysticized. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's been misunderstood. Uh, and, you know, for a very long time, there was this, you know, big question of were people of Egypt, even people of color, um, despite obvious things in indicating that they were. 
And so I, I think because it was so obvious to a lot of creators that this was this ancient culture that had a big impact on shaping the Western world and had a big impact and was shaped by um, and related to a lot of the, the, the rest of the African world as well. You know, it's like, why is it sometimes contextualized as if there's no relationship and Black cultural spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there are a lot of artists, like a Sun Ra, for example, you know, the jazz artist Sun Ra, who wanted to both symbolize, you know, this bridging of, of this uh, kind of legacy of in antiquity uh, with his relationship to space. You know, so uh, in various points, I'll just talk about, say, the 20th century, where there's this conversation where Black creatives or Black people in the Americas were sort of, on the one hand, trying to fight to reclaim narratives about a history and then also fighting to reclaim a relationship to the future as they're simultaneously trying to have rights in the present um looking to egypt or finding inspiration there i think was uh, a reminder of you know one element one great culture shaped by people of african um african heritage uh, that could be sort of used as a space of inspiration. I think that's one. I think the other is that there are just ideas philosophically that people found interesting. Um, the principles of Mayotte, for example. Um, sometimes people, uh, you know, there have been books written about how to incorporate that into your life. I think people saw parallels, very obvious parallels between, say, the deities in ancient Egypt and the, say, um, the the spiritual systems and other African African diasporic spaces, you know, they saw a big parallel there. And I think probably another really cool thing was that a lot of Egyptian and Nubian deities were women. Uh, and so when you're thinking about women leadership <laughs> or uh, cultures that valued women in antiquity. You know, Egypt and Nubia certainly come to mind, and you see a lot of those reminders. I think there's also, probably more recently, in, in looking at them, a certain kind of gender fluidity sometimes, um, because you did have some uh, women leaders who became pharaohs who would just take on male identities to mm-hmm. solidify their uh their kingdom or solidify their right to be leaders. So that was, you know, of course, fascinating. And I think the sheer scope in the time period, I mean, the pyramids certainly have been an inspiration for a host of things. Um, and so it's, it's a, a kind of a, a fun way to look at where mysticism and science meet, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a heart, the heart of Afrofuturism. And the fact that it's, I would say that, that ancient Egyptian culture is infused so much in pop culture. It, it, it says a lot about the staying power of that imagery, uh, but it also speaks to a depth. I'm going to go way out there with this. So we're talking about things that are, uh, we're talking about space and time and things that are existing in the same place at the same time. Uh, and I'm thinking about the Pharaoh being the incarnation of Horus in life. And yet they're both, um, like when the pharaoh dies, they don't die. It's they're like just... they're occupying two spaces simultaneously. Different cultures, um, even cultures within the, the Black 
um, the Black diaspora have sort of different takes on these, right? Where you have your soul, you have the spirit, and then you have this sort of uh, mortal body, right? And you can be inhabiting one and all three of these spaces at different mm -hmm. moments. So there's like the eternal you, you know, there's the, um, the higher aspect spiritualized part of you, and there's this body. They can all be quote unquote spiritualized. Uh, and one can last even if your physical body changes or quote unquote reincarnates into something else. Maybe you'll take the soul with you, but the spirit continues. You know, so it's it it's starting to look at that idea, you know, as a philosophical one, which really just starts looking at how do people frame themselves? You know, how are we looking at this life that we're living? And some would say, well, what does any of this have to do with ancient Egypt? And I think the point is, is that there's people finding a value in it in their lives today. So they're not just looking at ancient Egypt as this thing far off in the past and you, you know, dust it off, you know, you're dusting off artifacts to try to get a picture of this world. That's a part of it. But another part is that there's other people who these stories and these histories and the narratives about these gods and goddesses play a big role in who they are today. So Yatasha, in what kind of, do, do you feel any responsibility to uh, inform the audience that this is, uh, you know, based on history or that it's um, partly speculative or that it's all speculative, uh, you know, using these, these uh, elements of mythology in like um, contemporary works? It's interesting because um, I feel a sense of history, uh, a sense of responsibility to history because I love history. Right. I'm like, as much as I talk about the future, I'm a complete history buff. Uh, and so if I'm talking about a historical moment, I like to really give it its framing. And now what's interesting, though, at least for me, when I'm working with uh, the ideas of ancient Egypt or when I say I'm talking about these particular gods who are featured in uh, Black Cube, I can say, you know, I, I talk about the history of how they were perceived, right? But everything that they're doing is sort of in the modern era, right? So that inherently is speculative. Um, but what isn't speculative is when I'm sort of telling these fantastic tales in real periods of history. So if I'm talking about 1919 Harlem, if I'm talking about uh, 1982 Chicago, if I'm talking about um, what other area, if I'm talking about, say, today, you know, 2020-ish uh, America, 2020-ish Detroit, then I, I have to pull from real things to frame those times. So, uh, and I did a lot to try to contextualize those times and yet I'm taking these gods and goddesses who are quite ancient and putting them in this time, but they're contemporary figures. When people read uh, Black Cube, what do you hope that they take with them from ancient Egyptian culture? What do you hope that they, uh, that they seek out? Well, that the ideas behind some of these gods um, are kind of ongoing, that the concepts that uh, these gods sort of symbolize, particularly through the 
you know, the Agduad were really compelling. And it sort of changes how we think about ancient people um, or, or earlier civilizations. It really turns that on its head when you look at what these gods symbolized and, and how complex these ideas were. Um, I mean, so to have, you know, a pair of gods talking about the beginning before the beginning, you know, in the simple form, it's night is, is uh, has a lot of depth to it. So I would like people to leave with that. Um, and I also think it's sort of an interesting thing to think about uh, the role that these gods in a, a sort of literal sense play for some people today, but also how the ideas that some of the ancient people were dealing with that are typified by some of these gods that people are very much working with. Um, that I think is a little, that's quite transcendent um, to think about someone finding Egypt, finding inspiration creatively in the wee hours of the night or the morning thousands of years ago and me doing the same thing today, you know, it, it forms sort of this intimate relationship uh, with a past, uh, which I think is neat. The past is present, the present is past. It's all remixed. Yes. Thank you so much, Yatasha, for talking to us today and sharing your knowledge and your work. We, it's, I can't wait to check it out. Yes, it'll be out in like a year. So um, Tana Tuck is the illustrator. She's um, plugging away on it right now. I think you're going to be so excited when you see it. I'll be certainly excited uh, when you see it. And uh, I just encourage people to, you know, look more into Afrofuturism and the ideas and and the Afrofuturism book or my Rayla 2212 book or, um, and, you know, and certainly Black Cube because, Egypt, ancient Egypt, uh, played a role in uh, probably my impetus to tell some of these stories. For over 100 years, the OI has been a leading research center for the study of ancient Middle Eastern civilizations. Join us in uncovering the past and learn about the beginnings of our lives as humans together. Become a member by visiting oi.uchicago.edu slash member.